Hey, Revision, it's so good to be here with everybody this fine afternoon. How was Chick-fil-A? Yeah, it was heavenly. I couldn't eat it because I'm dieting. Let's, uh, let me visit with you for a few minutes so you get a, an idea of uh, who I am. Um, Alex Diaz is my name. I'm from Caracas, Venezuela originally, which is in the northern tip of South America. I've been in the U.S. for 23 years. Um, I am uh, married. My wife and I have three beautiful children that don't sleep. They are nine years old, six and two and a half, and they're beautiful and they're amazing. Um, and it's just such a privilege and a pleasure to do ministry here in the U.S. And uh, I I've been loving and enjoying the culture of uh, this part of the world. In fact, I, enjoy I enjoyed it so much that I wanted to learn the language, which is why I wanted to be a part of what is going on here. But I also don't uh, like to forget my own language. Um, I uh, speak Spanish primarily. I know that uh, one of you back here, you speak some Spanish. So anybody else speak Spanish? Raise your hand. Uh, you speak Spanish? And so you know, and you know a little bit, un poquito, that in Spanish, um, we use a lot of words for very simple ideas. And so I could just get up here and say, Epa, ¿qué tal? ¿Cómo está? ¿Ya comieron? ¿Les pasó bien? ¿Cómo está tu familia? ¿Cómo está tus hijos? ¿Cómo está tu tía? ¿Te gusta la iglesia? ¿Estás pasando bien? That whole thing just means, hi, how are you? It's just, it's just the way that the language is. But it's something that I don't want to leave behind. Yet, I feel that there is something happening in the U.S. that is bringing more and more people like us and like you and me, and it's creating this sort of uh, melting pot. And so today we're going to be diving into that, and we're going to be in the book of Ephesians chapter 3, and I'm going to begin with verse 20, and it says this, Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more, everybody say immeasurably more, than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. And so the title of uh, this talk for the next few minutes, if you're taking notes, is Immeasurably More. Let's bow our heads and pray. Father, thank you for allowing us to be in your presence and for your word and how much you challenge us and how you encourage us. Father, please do so in a way that allows us to, to take action and to be obedient to the things that you want us to do. And I pray these things. In your beautiful and powerful name, Jesus, Son of God, amen. Uh, how many of you love to go to a party or a gathering? I, I love gatherings of any kind, big or small. And so uh, whether it's some sort of a small get-together or, or a big concert or a big... I just love people, and I, I love getting together with people and seeing and observing how people behave. And so a few months ago, uh, my son really wanted to go to his first NBA game and um, I didn't really want to spend a lot of money on it. And so I got him the cheapest tickets, and he's nine, and, and, and I figured, you know, that'll be just enough for the first NBA game experience. And so we went down to the field house, and we saw the Pacers uh, play against the Nets, and we got tickets all the way up in the nosebleeds. I'm talking behind the jumbotron, far away. And so when we showed up, I thought, well, I'm still going to get some points as a dad because... It's his first NBA game, and he's going to remember that. But then once we got there, we started to see people that we knew and that they were sitting all the way down. And then my son started asking me, why are they there and we are here? And so then I had to tell him, well, because your dad is a pastor. And so this is, you know, what we can afford. This is what we can do. But uh, we started to see all the different sections. And so then he started to tell me, Dad, I want to be down there where the action is. I want to be with that group. I want to be with those people. I want to be in the mix 
with, uh, with, with the people that are really feeling it. Sometimes I feel that, just like when you go to a big stadium and you get assigned seating, I feel that we tend to do that in the church. And I feel we tend to do that because of preference and because of culture. Um, you perhaps have heard Revelation chapter 7, verse 9. And it says this, Before me was a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, tribe, people, and language standing before the throne and before the Lamb. Now, I uh, grew up in church. My family became, uh, they became believers when I was around eight years old. And I remember hearing this verse. And for some reason, back in South America, where, I was, where I'm from, I remember hearing this verse and picturing that there would be these sections in heaven, that some of us were going to get the cheap seats and others were going to get the good seats, the seats down by the field, and that uh, we were going to be divided uh, by our culture or our language. And so somewhere over here, we're going to be all of us Latinos, Hispanics, uh, just doing worship in our own way, you know, and you, would, you could hear worship rhythms like... You could hear that. In, in my mind, in my dreams, and I thought, well, that'll be good because then next to us would be uh, all the uh, white people, and then next to them would be all the uh, black people around the world, and then over here would be the Asians, and for some reason I came up, and I grew up with this idea that, they, that we're all going to be in heaven, but we're all going to be in our sections. So over time, I started to question that because what I see there in the book of Revelation is that people from every tribe and nation and tongue are together. What that means is that we are going to carry some of us and maybe even some of our cultural expression into heaven. That's not to say that we worship culture. It just means that God delights in the way that he has made each and every single one of us. And that somehow the cacophony of all these languages together is not going to be disorganized and it's going to be one beautiful orchestra of sounds of worship to the Father, all of us together. I have a friend who says, if heaven is not segregated, then why on earth is the church? In fact, I even wonder, going back to the idea of a gathering, when you show up to a gathering, you, you also have uh, questions in the back of your mind about who is not there. And you begin to wonder, why are they not here? And that's one of the questions that I started wondering when I first came to the U.S. And I come from a relatively diverse part of South America. And I remember going to the church for the first time and just looking around and really enjoying it and really feeling the presence of God, but also, also wondering, where's everybody else? Meaning, where are the Latinos? Where are the African Americans? Where are the poor? Where, are, where is everyone else? But we're, we're in a changing nation. Listen to this. According to the American Church Research Project, between 1990 and 2009, more than 56 million people were added to the U.S. Census. However, everybody say, however. During the same 20-year span, only 446,540 people became active members of a local church. That is less than 1%. And so if we're a people, if we're a church that wants to do what we've read several times this morning of going and making disciples of all nations, why is it so hard for us to do it in our own backyard? See, I feel that as much as I love the church, and I'm not jaded with the church, I love the bride of Christ, but as much as I love the church, we are... Uh, experiencing still a church in America that is divided. And this is divided based on uh, preference oftentimes rather than united on purpose. But the, the Word of God gives us a ministry that, that gives us a different view and a different perspective on this. Right there in Ephesians chapter 3, 
Let me give you a little bit of context on this. Paul is writing to a group of people that are gathering in a part of the, of, of the Roman Empire that's called Ephesus, and they have an assembly, they have a church together, but they're experiencing some division. And the division from within is coming from people who are called um, Gentiles, meaning people like you and me, people that didn't have a Jewish background. And then over here, there were those with a Jewish background telling the Gentiles, here are all the, all the religious things you need to do. Your attendance needs to show uh, your faith. Your um, circumcision needs to be part of the evidence of your faith. I mean, what level of membership is that? And they were just adding and adding uh, requirements to people. And so that created a fight. And they sent Paul an email. And they go, Paul, there is a, there's, a, there's division in our church. And the division is based on people's background. And so what do we say to that? And Paul then writes books like First uh, and Second Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians. And in this chapter of the book of Ephesians, chapter 3, you're, most of you are familiar with this chapter. That verse that we read of uh, learning the immeasurable love of Jesus is a verse that I have read and seen and heard many, many, many times. The first time that I visited this nation was in the year 2000, and I um, observed a ministry very similar to this of people your age, late teens, early 20s, worshiping together and reading this verse out loud, and it's sort of become a... Uh, life verse for me and understanding what God wants. And, and it's taken me this long to just begin to grasp what God is saying there. That's how deep the Word of God is. But when he's saying this, when, when Paul says that we will know how high, how deep, how, how wide God's love is for us, we tend to take that verse that is at the end of chapter 3 and we apply it to the fact that God's love and grace is bigger than our sin. And that is true. There is nothing that you can do that is, that is bigger than the grace and the forgiveness of God. However, Paul is talking to a church that is divided. There's context here. And he's talking to this church basically saying, you have a mystery that you haven't yet learned what it is. And it is a mystery that, that many prophets have written for hundreds of years. And it is a mystery that we have been waiting eagerly to find out what it is. And I have what it is. I'm going to tell you right now what it is, says Paul. And in verses 3 and 6, he says, the mystery made known to me by revelation, as I have already written briefly, this mystery is that through the gospel, the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members together of one body, and shares together in the promise of Christ Jesus. So basically he's saying, here's the mystery, here's the gift. We haven't unwrapped the gift. It's a gift that is for you. We haven't unwrapped it. We're going to unwrap it right now. And here it is. What is inside this gift, this box, is that together, people who are foundationally different from one another get to receive the same blessings of the grace of the Lord Jesus. That there's nothing that you should be doing to divide yourselves from other people because of your religious background or your preference, because that is not the will of God and there is something that we need to learn from that. I, I, most of you don't have little kids, but I do have little kids. And one of the things that I've observed with little kids is that on Christmas, when we open up presents, oftentimes they would rather play with the box than with the toy. Did you do that when you were little? And so at some point, my wife and I even started just getting boxes, like empty boxes for them and not spending the money because they love to play with the box. And sometimes they just love to play with the, with the box in the wrapper when they're little especially. And they don't care about what's inside because they're already engaged and already having fun. It's already easy to manipulate this gift. 
And I feel that the church in our side of the world has not had the opportunity or has not sought to open up this gift, this mystery, and to see what is inside. And, and, and I think that this part of the mystery reflects the prayer of Jesus of John 17. In John 17, uh, it is recorded the words that he said the night before he was betrayed, which means that he already knew what was about to happen, and he was with his best friends, his disciples, and they were about to have a communion together for the first time, and he was, be, he was going to give this ritual meaning and an eternal meaning for them to do and repeat all, uh, over and over again. But in this moment, he begins to pray and they capture these words. And in John 17, verse 20, 20, 21, he says, My prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message that all of them may be one. Everybody say one. Everybody say one like you had Chick-fil-A and it was good. There you go. Father, just as you are in me and I am in you, may they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. It's one of the few times in the Old, um, in the New Testament where we receive a very specific way in which people will know. And it doesn't say people are going to know who I am in the future because of your marketing efforts, though marketing is fine. I mean, I love graphic design, things like that. it's fine. We, we can store that well, but he doesn't say that. He also doesn't say people are going to know uh, who I am by how cool you are or how cool you look or even relevant. It just doesn't say that. I mean, we can, we can do whatever we want culturally if it gives glory to God, but he's, he's not saying that. He's saying that they may be one so that the world will know. And in the original language, there's a clause that implies that there's something, there's an, there's an intentional seeking of this unity that is a counterintuitive, countercultural type of unity that we don't, uh, that we have been missing out in the church because we tend to divide by preference. And so if you have friends that go to other churches but that are different than you, and the reason they go to other churches tends to be because they like the different preaching style over there, or maybe they like the music over there, and that's different than the type of music that you like in your church if you're believers. If you're not a believer, you've seen this from the side, and you've wondered why are people going to different places with different styles of music, and why are people so divided in the church? It's because we're putting preference ahead of purpose. And in this chapter in Ephesians, we see the way that he is pushing us toward unity. We, we live in a world that compartmentalizes. We live in a world that adds labels. And when we see somebody that, that stands out, we tend to want to push them back to where they belong. My wife and I went on a cruise one time. Um, we lived in Florida. And so it's really cheap being a Florida resident to go on a cruise. And if you've not been on a cruise, then don't die yet because they're awesome. They take care of you. They pamper you. You don't even have to make your bed. You don't have to cook. It's amazing. So I had heard that in cruises, most cruise lines have an experience, a dinner, fine dining experience, where you show up and you dress up and, and, and you just enjoy this um, fine dining experience with whoever. And so I went with my wife, and so she brought a beautiful dress, and I brought my suit, and we dressed up that evening, and we went to the restaurant. We found a table just for the two of us, and this was one of the most romantic settings ever. I gained so many points with my wife on that evening. Because it, it was an amazing, and, and I could smell the food was incredible, and I looked around, and I'm like, wow, this, this is a lot of people don't look like me, but, but all right, I'm not scared. You know, I'm here to have a good time. And then at some point, the maitre d', one of the servers, 
they're just running around, and the maitre d' walks past me, and he stops, and he looks down at me, and he says, what are you doing here? Get back to the kitchen, and keeps going. Now, that'll ruin your day, any day. <laughs> and I was hoping to get a free cruise after that, which I didn't. But this is the way in which we act, is we see people that don't belong, and we ascribe meaning, and we want to push them to where we think they belong. And I don't know that that reflects the heart of God. And we, we do that in the church. And so back to Ephesians chapter 3, we're going to pick up a few things from this uh, portion where we're going to see uh, what this immeasurably more really means when it comes to what God wants in terms of our church. It says in verse 8, Although I am less than the least of all the Lord's people, this grace was given to me to preach to the Gentiles the boundless riches of Christ. Here's how we can um, remember this, is that immeasurably more means counterintuitive unity under Christ. The fact that he was preaching to the Gentiles as a rabbi, you heard some about uh, what it meant to be a rabbi this morning. As a rabbi, it was countercultural and counterintuitive for Paul to be of that background and to be serving the Gentiles, even in the Christian church, because it was such a young church that they didn't really know what to do with uh, Gentiles. And yet Paul is called to go to the Gentiles, and what we see right there in Ephesians 3 is he's saying this this is my calling that you can model, that we are supposed to be one in unity with those Gentiles. And so I, I wonder, perhaps I, I would assume that most of us here are Gentiles, which means that we're, because we are a majority, most of us don't have a Jewish background, we probably don't really relate to the way Gentiles were feeling in the first church. And these were a group of people that were being ostracized and that were not treated well by other believers. And yet Paul is saying that, this grace of Jesus belongs to them. I think part of the reason why we are so accustomed and comfortable with compartmentalizing based on preference rather than purpose is because we miss out on what the gospel really means. Do, do you know, do you tell yourself every morning what the gospel of Jesus means? My assumption is yes, because you're here, because you're seeking Jesus, because he's made you a believer. But I know that Far and wide, we're in churches where we tend to miss that out as a myth. We may even say the words, Jesus died for me on the cross, um, bore the penalty for my sins, came back on the third day, defeated that he's with me now. But until you see the power of God through the gospel in your life, you don't really gain this urgency to see as many people as possible through your life come to Jesus regardless of their background, and even willingness in your life to sacrifice preference for the sake of this great purpose. My wife and I dated uh, long distance for about two and a half years. So she was in the States, and I was in South America. This was in the year 2000. So we didn't have WhatsApp then. We didn't have Facebook. We had MSN Messenger, which was crap. It was such a difficult way of connecting with one another. But this was a time when we were, we're I mean, we're, we're still so in love, but you know those first few months, if, if you've ever fallen in love, where uh, you just want to talk to them all the time, and you want to sacrifice anything, um, anything you have and everything you are so that you can be with this one person. So it's very painful for me to not communicate to the woman I love. She was, she was so cute, and so I wanted, to, I wanted to see her and talk to her. And, 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 so, and I've always had that, but I remember at that point it was just really hard to communicate. 
So at the time, most of you won't know, what this, uh, won't know the context for this, but at the time, in order to be able to call from one country to another, you had to purchase a phone card, a calling card. So you would get this card, you would purchase it, you would punch in the numbers, and then you could speak to whoever around the world for however many minutes. And sometimes you had to yell because the phone line was so weak. But this is the way things worked out at that point. And at that point, my parents bought a calling card. My dad was only able to afford $20 a month for this calling card, which only gave me 30 minutes a month to talk to her. But so I, for the first few months that we had this calling card, I would call her and I would just spread out these, these uh, 30 minutes throughout the month because I wanted to hear her voice. And then one day, because I'm a rule breaker, I decided, let me go one minute over and see what happens. My dad kept telling me, don't, even, don't you dare. Don't you even dare. But I went over because of love. And I went over one minute, and the bill came, and it was still $20. So then the next month, I thought, I'm going to go over 10 minutes and just to see what happens. And so we went over 10 minutes, and the bill came back, and it was $20. And then I thought, wow, maybe God is real. And so then, then the next month, we went another 20. And so I started adding minutes and hours. And then one day, y'all, the bill didn't come. And it was, it was like a blessing from heaven because we would just talk for hours and hours and hours. And it was so cheesy because we would talk at night and, and we, would, we wouldn't be saying anything. Just, we, I just want to hear her breathe. <sighs> Are you still there? Yes, I'm still here. I love you so much. Please don't hang up because I was so needy and so in love. And so we just, we had this phone for hours. We, we, we spent so many minutes, but the bill didn't come for a few months. And then one day after about six or seven months, a letter comes in the mail. And it's addressed to Mr. Diaz. That's my dad. Says, Mr. Diaz, you have accrued a debt with us. And if you don't pay within the next few months, you're going to be the object of a lawsuit. And the amount was about $2,000. Now, let me put that into context. For a broke college student in South America, $2,000 could take a lifetime to save in the local currency. Y'all, that's when I learned how to pray. Because I got on my knees on that day when I saw that letter, and I was like, Lord, please take this away. I prayed like Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. Take this cup away from me, but if it's your will, and you know that I love her, and you've given me to her, and Father, and, I'm, and I, I, I was turning Pentecostal. I, I'm, I claim this thing. I claim that um, I'm not going to have to pay this, this bill. And so then more months passed, and because I am who I am, I kept using the car just to crew it because I wanted to talk to her. And then one day another letter came. And this other letter was addressed to my dad, Mr. Diaz, and it said, because of morose, <laughs> that means people who don't pay, because of morose customers like you, that's called Latin guilt, by the way, because of morose customers like you, we have found ourselves in the uncomfortable circumstance of having to shut down our business. You don't owe us anything from this point on. And at that point, y'all, I was like, God is powerful. I believe in him. He has given me everything I asked and more because he forgave me these thousands of dollars that I needed to pay. And, and, and so I don't know who paid for it, but all of a sudden I was free. And that's what the gospel is when it comes to our sin. Is that we have a bill of how much we have dishonored God, of how far away we are from God. And then Jesus came in, and he took that bill, and he paid it with his blameless life. And then on top of that, he was tortured for it so that the bill could be wiped away from your life. You and I, our account, in Jesus, 
It's paid for. And when you understand the gospel on a daily basis that Jesus has covered our sins in that way, then you begin to put your preference aside because there's a greater purpose. Because you go, I want to tell as many people as I can and serve as many people as I can so that they can know that this gospel is the way that God has chosen divinely to take away our sins. And I'm going to do it sacrificing any preferences that I have because of the gospel. Now, in verse 10 of Ephesians chapter 3, it says, His intent was that now through the church, the manifold wisdom, everybody say manifold. Okay, turn around and tell the person next to you who's falling asleep, tell the manifold. The manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms. See, there's a word here, the word that I just had you repeat, manifold, and the original language was the same word that was used to denote a multicolored robe. And in this particular verse, he's saying there is a diversity in the wisdom of God that should be made known. Remember the context. This is a divided church. And what I learned from this is that immeasurably more is to seek and display God's love in plurality, not on personal, on personal preferences. In plurality. Did you know that most of the time when you see the word you in the New Testament, the original language is actually saying y'all? So I, I spent six years in the South. I lived in Arkansas until a couple years ago. People ask me all the time, how I was living in the South? I loved it. I loved the food. I loved the culture. I, and I love some of the words. And so what? That's, this is one of the words that I brought from the South is y'all. Now here in the North, you guys say you guys, right? But y'all just flows, right? Everybody say y'all. Y'all. Now, if you, the more you practice, the more you do that with the, with the southern twang. And it's just so cool to hear that deep accent. Most of the time, the New Testament, when it says you, it's actually saying y'all. Because it is assuming a community. It's assuming a collectivistic culture, not necessarily something that is given only and solely to individuals. And God is so big that we get to understand his manifold wisdom this way. I think what it, what it means there is that I cannot presume to know God all by myself. When I hear people talking about the fullness of God, I'm diving into the fullness of God. I know you are too small to understand the fullness of God. You should pursue it. But what is the fullness of God if we don't see him as greater than ourselves? And sometimes we get to learn about the fullness of God through other people's experiences with him. And part of the reason why I think this manifold wisdom can be also sought out and found in communities where people have diverse backgrounds and nationalities um, and languages is because we all get to experience God differently. And there may be something that we learn about God from people who are different than us. People who are different than us, even in this region. The people that we don't really spend time with those are the people that God may be using to show you the next part and the next, next aspect of his character that he's just waiting for you to tap into because all it takes is get, coming together as the church with people who are different than us. In the same way, I believe the church around the world is very diverse, obviously, because the church around the world exists in different nations and different people groups, but I also believe that each region of the world shows us a in, in a big way, part of the character of God. And so from the church in India, I think we can learn revival. 
If you've ever heard of, of, of uh, pastors, leaders, missionaries in India, you have um, heard that it's a church that is exploding even though they are persecuted daily. And they're experiencing this revival, this renaissance of the faith in that part of the world. From the church in Ukraine, we can learn perseverance under trials. Over the next few years, we're going to start hearing more and more stories about believers right now in that part of the world that are gathering even though they're being attacked and invaded by another country. From the church in China, we can learn the power of prayer and multiplication at all costs. The church in China is a church that has not allowed Christianity, to, to real and true Christianity, to be, a, to be a growing faith with presence, legal presence in the state for decades. And yet, it's one of the parts of the world where the church is just exploding. We can learn that perseverance, that reliance on the power of prayer. From the church in Nigeria, we can learn spiritual warfare. From the church in Colombia, we can learn a lifestyle of worship. From the church here in America, we can learn what? For me, I think there are many things that our church can provide to the rest of the world. Organization, structure, maybe resources. But can we be up there alongside the rest of the global church, showcasing part of the character of God? Is it generosity? Is it peace? Is it compassion? What is the part of the character of God that we are called to showcase to the rest of the world? See, I think unity in the church and even diversity, let's just call it what it is, intentional diversity, is not about wokeism. It's just political terms for political environments. It's about the fact that we see it in the prayer of Jesus, that we see it in the book of Acts, that we see it in the book of Revelation, and that we are not seeing in our churches. And here's what concerns me about your generation, is that your generation is one of the most diverse generations in the life of this country. In fact, the demographers were expecting that um, your generation was going to reach a level where there were going to be no majorities. It's called a majority of minorities. And they were waiting for the year 2018 for that to happen. What that means is that if we were to get rid of all the adults, everybody over 18, Right now, we were, would be one of the most diverse nations in the world, and there would be no majority. There would be mainly minority groups that are combining with each other. And that happened way sooner than they expected. And so your, your schools are very diverse. Whenever you go to a, to a sports event, you go to the field house, you go to a basketball game in your neighborhood, it's very diverse. You go to a concert, the Taylor Swift concert, very diverse. My, my wife made me into a Swifty. Um, so I've been to a Taylor Swift concert, and it's very diverse. And then you come out of high school, maybe even go through college, and you reach the church, and the church is saying, now that you're with us as an adult, come over here where your preferences are met. And their preferences can be met somewhere else. I think that denies an aspect of God's character in this chapter, which is love. Listen to verses 17 and, uh, uh, through 19. I pray that you being rooted and established in what? In love. That you may have power together with all the Lord's holy people to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ and to know this love that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. And so all of this is about love. 
And it's about having a love for the lost and a love for the hopeless, regardless of background, and actually being willing to sacrifice our purpose so that other people will know who our God is. Unity in the church is not about a political um, uh, ideal. It's about love. It's about a love that we need to exemplify. It's about a love that exists in heaven. It's about a love that we are having a hard time breaking out and showing the world because of our cultural preference, because of style of music, because of style of preaching, because of the way people dress, because of where they live around the city, because of our preference. But listen to what the world says about love. Maya Angelou said, love recognizes no barriers. It jumps hurdles, leaps fences, and penetrates walls to arrive at its destination full of hope. Immeasurably more is learning the love of God through people that are different than us so that we can really and truly in community understand the fullness of God as we are displaying and showcasing a counterintuitive, um, countercultural type of unity that the world has yet to see, or at the very least, our part of the world has yet to see. And what if we were becoming a church? What if we did decide right now, today, that we're going to become a church that will make disciples of all nations right here in our backyard where the nations are coming? What if we were to decide right now as a church that we are going to be a church that showcases the type of unity that makes people go, I wonder why those two are friends better than a postcard or a Facebook-sponsored ad? I wonder if we could get people in our congregations who can be together regardless of the fact that they may come from um, poor or uh, wealthy backgrounds and come together, or perhaps could we see believers who vote differently, who vote Republican and Democrat, coming together to worship Jesus together in unity so that the world will know, so that people will go, what are those two doing together? We can only do that through love. My wife is white, and I am chocolate brown, which I love. And I can tell the environments I walk in because I can see this expression in, their, in people's face sometimes is, what are those two doing together? Now, sometimes people go, wow, that dude really married up. That is true. But sometimes people look at us and they go, what are those, what are those two doing together? Because of love. And what if the church were that the same way? In verse 20 of Ephesians 3, he says, now to him who's able to do immeasurably more. Remember this whole context. Remember this whole um, um, a direction of unity that Paul is showing us. Immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. He's saying immeasurably more than we can ask or imagine that can cover anyone and everything that can allow us to be communities that showcase this kind of unity in a way that the world has not seen. And every once in a while we get to see that in our local churches. I will finish uh, with this story when we were getting ready to start um, the church that I'm at now we began a campus for uh, Traders Point uh, Christian Church here in town so we started our campus in Midtown Broad Ripple area and it's been growing great it's been so much fun and it's, it's been great to see people coming together and, and but one day we were having a gathering very similar to this where we were talking about what the Lord was calling us to do and I'm talking to a man called Nick now let me give you some background about Nick Nick is an uh older gentleman in his 60s the majority of our church our campus at least is people in their late 20s early 30s young families with young kids mr nick a blue collar worker doesn't really fit the demographic of our church 
But one day he showed up in the morning, six in the morning. We have these trailers full of equipment, so we have to unload them and set them up at the Seventh-day Adventist church that smells like old people. So we have to do a lot of work to get this to, to be welcoming to host. But they've been great with us. And so one day this dude showed up at six in the morning, which is not when we have our services. It's way too early. And he just showed up and said, I'm looking for a church. I want to worship Jesus here. What can I do? Oh, well, Nick, the, the main thing you can do is help us with setup and teardown. Like, you can help us put, the, you know, put chairs around and put some speakers and hang them and uh, put the screen. Whatever you see that you can do, put some cables together. That's, so it wasn't, anything, it wasn't anything beautiful. It wasn't anything that would give anybody platform. But he wanted to serve, and he was so happy serving for a few months doing that. Just happy as can be. He would show up at 6 in the morning and serve with everybody else. And then I'm talking to Mr. Nick one day after a few months, and he's telling me that he's a recovering alcoholic. Now, I knew this because sometimes you can smell that off of people. He's telling me he's a recovering alcoholic and that he came to know God closely when he began his path of recovery in Alcoholics Anonymous. He's telling me this super loud. He doesn't care who's hearing this. And then all of a sudden, this lady, who was one of the singers of our band, um, she walks by. Now, she's a different background, different ethnicity. She is not a blue-collar worker. She's a lawyer. Um, different ages, even. And she hears this, and she said, I'm sorry, did you mention AA? And Nick said, yes, I did. And she goes, I'm also a recovering alcoholic. And at that moment, right in front of me, these two people from different genders, different backgrounds, different ethnicities, different places in the socioeconomic structure of our society came together, and they hugged each other with tears. And they start talking about what AA has done in their lives. And I'm blown away at this. So I'm wondering, I hope that, that we are the same way about the church. That we are the same way about the fact that the Lord is bringing us together while we are in recovery from our sin as we get closer and closer and closer to Him. And so then I asked them, what, what brought you guys to Alcoholics Anonymous? Like, what, what's your story? And they told me, both of them told me their story of pain. But then it occurred to me to ask them, what, what made you come to this church? Is it the equipment? Is it the banners? Is it the postcard you received? Is it the t-shirts we're wearing? Uh, is it the preaching? Is it the worship? Is it the production? Is it the kids' ministry? What is it that brought you to this church? And both of them said, God led us here, and we want to worship him no matter what. Now, that background of AA, those AA groups meet wherever they can find room. In other words, an Alcoholic Anonymous group doesn't have to meet in the newest and greatest place in the city. They find the back rooms of old churches. They find rooms in funeral homes. They find uh, rooms in hotels. They find whatever space they can. And then in that moment, they begin to heal, regardless of the packaging. And when I asked them, what brought you to church is that willingness to come together. And I asked them, well, what, what do you think about the stuff we're putting together? What do you think about the fact that we have equipment and that we have sound and we have all, and, and they're like, we just, we just don't care. It's great. Fine. Thank you. But we're here because of Jesus. People of different backgrounds coming together. So I hope as one of the most diverse generations in the history of this nation, that you will pay attention to Ephesians chapter 3, that you will not play with the box, but really find the treasure and the mystery inside. And that you will be a church that will show the world immeasurably more than we can ask or imagine by the way that you love others, especially those who are different than you. Amen.
Let's pray. Father, thank you for this time. Thank you for this generation and the way in which you are declaring your wisdom and your truth. Encourage us, challenge us, and lead us to be a church that shows the manifold wisdom that exists in you, the unit in diversity that exists in heaven, not because of political allegiances, but because of the love that you have shared with us. And I pray these things in your powerful and uniting name, Jesus, Son of God. Amen.